So we'd like to welcome everybody here. Uh, it's a very, uh, it's a great pleasure to be able to be on the air and speak with an author that we've been uh, looking for for quite some time. Jeff, how you doing? Doing great, and I'm excited to talk to Miranda today. I'm a huge, huge fan. Yes, uh, the book is called The Pawful Truth. It is number 11 in the Cat and the Stacks mystery series. So, Miranda, thanks so much for coming on. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. Glad to be here. <laughs> so, like we said, so The Pawful Truth, book 11 now in the Cat and the Stacks mystery series. Uh, the series is just going awesome. The book comes out July 16th. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what you got going on in this one? Okay, well, um, I had a certain plot in mind, but I was trying to find a title. And my titles have to be approved by the marketing people because, you know, they think they know more than anybody. And I can't argue with them. They've done a great job with my books. And I found a list of movie titles that had been altered to include a, some kind of cat reference. And The Pawful Truth came from The Awful Truth, which is one of the great screwball comedies starring uh, Irene Dunn and Cary Grant. It's one of my all-time favorite movies. It's great. And I love The Pawful Truth, so I thought, hmm, what can I do with the plot of the screwball comedy to turn it into a murder mystery? So I took some of the elements, and I mixed up some of the character names, and made them the characters in this book. And it starts with, Charlie Harris, my main character, deciding to take a course at Athena College where he works part-time as a rare book librarian and an archivist. And he's been interested in medieval history, which is my own background in academia, so that was a natural. And he goes to his first class and, you know, is enthralled by the professor as everyone is. He's a tall, charismatic young man. And as Charlie's leaving the class, the only other mature student uh, goes up to the professor, and Charlie overhears the professor say, what the hell are you doing in my class? And then Charlie goes away from that, and things sort of develop from there, because that other mature student is a beautiful, shall we say, bosomy blonde, and who winds up dead. And Charlie, as always, gets involved in these things, as amateur sleuths tend to do, so it goes on from there. Well, and it's not it's not a screwball comedy, but right. I took some of the dynamics of the characters and some of the things that happened in the book and twisted them to make them, as the saying goes, malice domestic, rather than you know romping around the countryside chasing a leopard like in Bringing Up Baby. Well, this isn't the only title that you've done that with, where you take a really classic film and give it the slight twist on the title and play with it in the story. Um, what appeals to you about doing that? Well, the fashion seems to be, uh, at least as the marketing people think of it, as um, you know, titles that have a bit of a pun to them and some kind of play on words. And so, uh, for example, the previous title was uh, Six Cats a Slayin', you know, taken from the... the um, you know, the Christmas song, Partridge in a Pear Tree, and the one before that was Claws for Concern, and and so on. Uh, some of the titles have been more straightforward, like The Silence of the Library, 
uh, and that's a, of course a twist on Silence of the Lambs and <laughs> that's a good and things. And uh, there have since been other Silence of the titles in the cozy world, but uh, it's just fun. Um, the the title of the work the book I'm working on right now is called Careless Whiskers. <laughs> and uh, I had recently wanted. Did you ask the George Michael estate for that one? <laughs> no, no, thank goodness. Uh, originally, I wanted it to be called Whiskers in the Dark. But oh. I found out that Rita Mae Brown and Sneaky Pie Brown had the audacity to snatch that title away from me. Oh. And that book just came out recently. So I had to go oh. for my second choice. And Careless Whiskers uh, served the, the purpose. Because uh, the book I'm writing now, Careless Whiskers, involves a play called Careless Whispers. It's a murder mystery play. Mm-hmm. So. That's cool. I always try to have the title have something to do with the book, if possible. Uh, the very first book, Murder Past You, sort of had something to do with the plot, but um, not as much as later books do. Or later titles do, I should say. Right. Well, now, Miranda, I, I love cozy mysteries. I love whodunits. I love trying to figure out how the author is laying the clues out there. And I also love puzzles, and I think people who love puzzles kind of love these kinds of books because that's exactly what you have to do is you've taken, you've put the puzzle together and then you've taken all the pieces and scattered them throughout the book. So how kind of, give us a little bit about like how, how your writing process goes in order to kind of leave those clues, drop those clues. So we know that we got a piece of that puzzle. So then kind of at the end, the reader can kind of put it together and, and solve it along with, uh, you know, Charlie. Well, first off, I try, uh, since I write from Charlie's point of view in the first person, Readers see everything he sees, and I think it's kind of up to them to interpret what they see him seeing and to try to pinpoint what is significant. You know, I, I try to be like Agatha Christie. I, don't, I try not to put up a big red flag and say, hey, this is important, because Christie was brilliant at showing you something and then immediately distracting your attention away from it. And the thing that you've been distracted from is what you ought to pay attention to. And I am in no stretch of the imagination than Agatha Christie, but she is my model in terms of constructing a plot, and so is Carolyn Hart, uh, a writer I admire tremendously, and who I think is you know, the modern Agatha Christie in many ways. Uh, so I do that, and I start with a situation in mind. For example, in The Pawful Truth, um, the dynamics... Uh, in, in the movie, The Awful Truth, Cary Grant and Irene Dunn are married, but they've been on separate vacations, and they come back, and their stories don't quite jibe. And Irene thinks Carrie has been cheating on her, and so she files for divorce. So there's that whole dynamic of did he or didn't he. And I use that dynamic in The Pawful Truth so that, it, you know, was the, the, the handsome professor who's based on Cary Grant, was, is he cheating on his wife, who's a beautiful uh, professor in the English department, who also happens to write historical fiction. And then later on, is she cheating on him? So I, I played with those dynamics. So that was the situation I had in mind. And then I had other characters involved. And I, I'm not one of those people who sits down and make out a, a detailed outline because... Frankly, that bores me to death. By the time I got through doing that, I would be tired of the story. Because I want to entertain myself as I write, as I do readers. And I 
go by what many people call the organic process or seat of the pants. Once I get my characters in there and I start letting them talk and do things, then the story kind of takes on a life of its own and I follow what seems reasonable for them to be doing and for what is going to happen next uh, in the plot. I'm also a big believer in the power of the subconscious because writing is not all just sitting at a computer or writing on a piece of paper. A lot of the writing process goes in, goes on in the back of your mind. Because I know once I get to a certain point in the book, my mind is bubbling away. And if I get to a point where I can't figure out something, if I go away or if I go to bed and go to sleep the next day, sit down again and something occurs to me because I think the subconscious works on those things for you. And I've, I've had that happen so many times. I mean, this is like the 27th book I think I've written, and that's happened wow. many times in this process. The other thing is I put a lot down to my training as a historian because I went to graduate school and got a Ph.D. to be a college professor. And my subject was medieval history. And, of course, history you're taught to analyze and look for connections and things. And I'm a very linear thinker. I have a friend who writes really great books, but she'll write chapter 1 and then chapter 17 and then chapter 4 and then chapter 19, and that would drive me crazy. So I have to follow a logical progression. And usually, well, by the time I get to the end, sometimes I don't even know, I'm not really sure who the killer's going to be or why, but as I write, I sometimes go back and look at what I've done and I think, ah, now I see this is why this person is going to do it. Because my, you know, my, my, what, uh, basement mind, you know, deep down in there has somehow figured out something that my conscious mind hasn't clued into yet. But also, you know, I get to the end and sometimes I see things that need to get fixed and I can go back and tweak them and end up with that. So, and I look for things that can be clues. And I think my books are, I mean, there are sometimes physical clues, but my favorite Christie character is, is Miss Marvel. Oh, yeah. Miss Marvel's clues are psychological. I firmly believe that Agatha Christie wrote psychological mysteries with Agatha, with Miss Marvel, because Miss Marvel bases everything on behavior she's witnessed in that small village. You know, she's knows every bit about human nature that uh, the most eminent psychologist knows. So I tend to think about psychological clues too, and Charlie's pretty good at focusing on those. He doesn't always pick up on things right away, but toward the end, when he starts analyzing things and pulling them together, these things come to him, and that's where sometimes the solutions come for him. And that's particularly so in The Powerful Truth. Things fall into place, and I think some readers will see it coming, some won't, but I think it, you know, there's enough clues there for, for them to see it. Well, I'd, and being that's a really long nature, answer, but <laughs> that's, uh, that's <laughs> good. That's good. That's what yeah. I like. Yeah, I was going to say we think alike because I was a history major myself. Um, but since you don't outline, I'm curious: how do you keep the details and your cast of characters straight between the books? You know, don't give one dark hair in one and give blonde hair in the next. Yeah, that's sort of thing. Well, you know, I'll, if you really look, I don't do a lot of physical description sometimes for the main characters. You know, because I've discovered that no matter how you describe them, readers are going to come up with their own visuals. So I don't spend a lot of time on 
lengthy you know, word pictures of people. And and I like and that I, actually. Because I, I know that, you know, I do that myself when I read other people's work. I get a certain vision. You know, for example, Bill Kreider's wonderful Sheriff Dan Rhodes series. I can't help it when I read one of those, I see Bill as Dan Rhodes, which is terrible because, you know, Dan gets beat up a lot and poor, poor Bill, <laughs> may he rest in peace, you know. I always see him bruised and battered. But um, the other thing to do is I, uh, I use Dropbox to back up my files and stuff, and every book is on there. And so if I have a question, I just go in and open up, you know, the file and do a search, and, right. you know, I can find the information. At some point, I should probably do a little Bible, as they call it, of the series, because I'm up to book, I'm writing book 12 now, and there's one more under contract right now. But uh, that just takes a lot of time. Right. What's, what's the biggest thing for you that gets you to want to wake up every morning and get on that computer and start typing out that next book? Is it, is it the puzzle? Is it the mystery? I mean, is it the characters? What's your passion for wanting to get up and hit that computer? Well, I have to be honest. Some of it is desperation. <laughs> Food? Uh, well, no. Well, there is that. I mean, I, fortunately, I have a day job. But, um, but no is, uh, you know, the deadline. And, you know, I'm one of those kids who grew up, you know, always wanting people to think I was a good kid, you know, because I would try to make good grades so people would think well of me and so forth. And so I adore my editor. She's wonderful. And I do not want to disappoint her or cause her aggravation. So, you know, I, I am also one of those people who procrastinates a bit. So I sometimes leave things a bit late. But I've also discovered that desperation tends to spur my creativity, shall we say. You know, and I'm really gilding the lily there. But uh, uh, it does tend to spur creativity. Because I have the first 100 pages of the book, and mine are usually about anywhere from 350 to 370 pages, you know, double space. Um, the first 100 pages is like agony for me because I'm getting to know the new characters that I've introduced and seeing what the possibilities are and everything. And then after that, about 100, 110 pages, it becomes a book. And then it's fun to sit down and say, okay, what's going to happen next? What's Charlie going to do? You know, what are his kids doing, going to be doing in this book? Because I try to include, you know, sort of a, kind of like a fi family saga in the book. Because I've discovered over the years, you know, in my own predilections, but also having worked at a mystery bookstore for 30 years and talking to customers, what draws people to this kind of book is the characters and their lives. You know, they pick up the next book just as much to find out, you know, what's going on with Charlie and... Sean and Laura and Stuart and Haskell and Helen Louise and Diesel and, and now Ramses, who was introduced in the last book, as they are to read a puzzle and to figure out who done it this time. And I, and I take that seriously because Charlie and his family are very real to me. And I'm interested in their lives and seeing what the potentials are there. And so that's, that's one of the things that helps, that's fun for me, is seeing what happens next with them. That's cool. But truthfully, you're the only one that knows. We're, we're just waiting to find out. So I'm just Well, exactly. You know, <laughs> and uh, people keep nudging me about Charlie and Helen Louise, and it's like, you know, just wait. You know, 
Charlie and Helen Louise will do this on their time, not yours. I'm sorry if you're frustrated, but you know it's <laughs> <Right>. their lives. <laughs> well, I, I'm kind of curious. Uh, you got your start writing in actually nonfiction. What was the yes. leap to make you jump into fiction? Well, I wrote my first book when I was about 12. It was a very bad knockoff uh, cross between Trixie Belden and Nancy Drew, who were my two major literary influences at the time. And, uh, I, you know, from that point on, I wanted to be a writer. Uh, but I really didn't do anything about it until I was in graduate school at Rice. And I wrote, one summer I was house-sitting for my advisor and her husband while they were in uh, Europe for seven weeks. And they had an electric typewriter, and uh, which I had the use of. And so I started to work on uh, my first adult mystery novel. It eventually got published after numerous revisions. But... Uh, you know, I had always wanted to write fiction, but uh, the, the nonfiction came first. And, and that's, I mean, to me, that's a, an easier kind of writing because it comes out of that analytical side of my brain, mm -hmm. you know, analysis, evaluation, whatever, because they were reference books about mystery writers, chiefly women to begin with, and then other writers. So that was a lot easier. But it did give me, uh, most importantly, an entree to publishing and, and got me an editor. You know, and I could go on from there with the fiction. That's cool. Nice. <coughs> Excuse me. Wow, just had a nice little cough there. Uh, of course, fans of yours know not only do you do your Cat and Stacks mystery series, but there's a Southern Ladies mystery series that has uh, still kind of, you know, has fans waiting to see when uh, book five is coming. Do you have any uh, words for them on that one? Well, no, right now, uh, the last contract I signed was for four Cat in the Stacks books, and the publisher wasn't so keen on the, the Southern Ladies, because honestly, uh, they do have a, a good audience, but they sell about half the, the rate that the Cat in the Stacks books do. So until sales pick up on those, I mean, they, they still sell but uh, not in the same numbers as the Cat in the Stacks books. But I include, uh, since they tell me you know, they wanted four Cat in the Stacks books, I've taken care to include uh, the sisters in each of the books since. And in fact, Miss Dixie, the younger sister, has a, uh, a nice uh, part in The Powerful Truth, and I think readers will get a kick out of that. And in the book I'm writing now, Miss Angel, is acting sort of as a deus ex machina in this one, and uh, that's kind of fun too because I, I love them both dearly. They're they're based on two real friends of mine who are who are like forty you know thirty five forty years younger, both married with children, but the personalities are theirs in many ways, and they get a big kick out of it. <laughs> I, I have to ask, um, why the pseudonyms? Well, my name is Dean James. You go Google that and see what you get. <laughs> okay, you go Google that. Dead movie star. Oh. Yeah. Oh, you know, okay. And, uh, so, I mean, I'm I'm hard to find that way. Yep. You know, there it is, so. James Dean. Dead. <laughs> exactly. Yes, and I can't tell you how many 55. times a year. Every year in school, you know, the first day of school, James Dean, where are you, James Dean? Well, I'm dead. here, but I'm Dean Dean James. And it still happens to me, you know, today. Sales reps who call the library about things, you know, they say, uh, can I speak to James Dean? You know, it's, it's, anyway, so 
pseudonyms made it simpler to find and identify my books. And I chose Miranda for these books because Miranda is my favorite uh, heroine in Shakespeare from The Tempest. And I've, oh, I just okay. always loved that name. And I actually used it in a previous series, the Trailer Park books that I wrote as uh, Jimmy Ruth Evans. And Miranda was one of the children of the heroine in that book. The other one was Juliet. So I, okay. I like my Shakespeare sometimes. And, of course, <laughs> in the current series, Laura is an actress who loves Shakespeare and quotes him. And I, that's fun, too, sometimes. Right, okay. And right. I, I'm starting to get this picture now. This is cool. Okay. Um, wondering if you have any works in the future that might make TV or film. Well, I would love to see the Cat in the Sacks books or, you know, if Olivia Dukakis and Shirley MacLaine are game, I'd love to see them playing the Ducote sisters. <laughs> yeah, I would love that too. Absolutely. They were so perfect in uh, Steel Magnolias. Steel Magnolias. I've been told that the issue with uh, the Cat in the Sacks books is that because Charlie is a man, you know, I mean, Lifetime in those places, for that kind of book, they want a female, you know, main character. But, uh, you know, yeah, Tom Bosley were Sherlock alive, Holmes was, was a pretty good male detective, so was Hercule Poirot and many I know. others. <laughs> I know, but... Come on. Yeah, but, I mean, you know, the Lifetime... I mean, the Hallmark... I said Lifetime, but I should have said Hallmark. The Hallmark movie channel seems to be the primary... There's an opening place. now. Yeah. I mean, they got an opening. There's no more garage sale mysteries. Ooh, too soon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yeah. I would love to see it on that channel, yeah. personally. I think it would be fantastic. It would be perfect. Uh, yeah. You know, and, uh, I don't, I, I, you know, we have my agent, you know, works with a West Coast, you know, film agent, but, mm -hmm. you know, so far. And I, I thought my, my heroine in my trailer part books it would have been perfect for Reba McIntyre. You know, but she's, she's oh, a, little, okay, yeah. a little older now. And uh, an actress named Conchata Farrell, whom I've loved for years, you know, she was like the housekeeper in uh, uh, Two and a Half Men. She oh, yeah. She had the yeah, yeah, yeah. the heft to play May Rain, Wanda Nell's best friend, but none of that ever happened. Mm. So. Yeah, a lot of people don't even realize that Reba McIntyre, well, you know, right after, I mean, it was like when she was at kind of the height, I guess, of her singing, but she started her, that TV show. I mean, it was on for a good couple, two, three years, I believe. Oh, it was on for five or six, I think. Yeah, yeah. It was, I've, I've it was, I mean, that's some funny. It was a good southern time. funny kind of show, yeah. Yeah, you know. And, you know, the, the, the issue would be, you know, getting a character, I mean, uh, finding a cat big enough to play Diesel because he's larger than the average main king. But he's based on a real cat. Is he based off of Dragon from Secret of Nim? Because that was the fattest cat I ever saw. No, no, actually, the late Barbara <laughs> Murray, you know, a.k.a. Oh, okay. Uh, Barbara Michaels Elizabeth Peters had a Maine Coon, and I got to meet him one time. His name was The Diesel. Barbara was a huge Washington Redskins fan, and that was the nickname of, of a running back whose name I forget. And Diesel. Uh, yeah, he was called The Diesel because he, you know, mowed them down. I guess like a diesel engine. So I guess I John Riggins series, would. John Riggins would probably be that person that I would think yeah, would be a Yeah, that's him. That's him. That's him. Yeah, yeah, okay. And so when I started to write this series, that cat immediately popped into my mind because um, the friend and I, my friend Beth Foxwell and I went to visit Barbara one year after Malice Domestic, and we're sitting there in this bobcat 
looking thing walks in the room. And uh, I'd never seen a cat that size in my life. And he weighed 40 pounds. He was not overweight. And he took a shine to Beth and sat in her lap most of the time, which meant she could not get out of the chair unless he consented. But he was <laughs> the sweetest, gentlest big guy, you know. And so I modeled my character uh, after after him. And Barbara teased me from time to time about suing me for stealing her cat, but I think <laughs> she was tickled about the whole thing. That's awesome. So give everybody a little bit of your social media and where they can find you out. And how does Diesel like social media? Well, Diesel has his own Facebook page. <laughs> and he's not as chatty as he could be because he's a little lazy. Uh, you know, but he's there as, uh, on Facebook as Diesel Harris Cap, all one word. And Miranda is there too, Miranda James author. And, of course, there's my own page, Dean James. Dean James 1, I think it is. And then I have a Twitter account as Miranda James 57. Diesel doesn't have a Twitter account yet. I'm debating that. And then, of course, there's the website, catinthesacks.com. But it's, it's a bit out of date, unfortunately, and I've got to get something done with that. But working a full-time job and, and writing two books a year doesn't leave a whole lot of time for a lot of other Anything. things. Anything. No. Yeah. So... Well, there goes my Instagram question. <laughs> yeah, yeah I just, I, you know, this, I'm at my social media, you know, Within. threshold. I think. <laughs> yeah. You know. So uh, once you get, it's like it seems to me that once you dive into that world, it's like you can't get out. It's like diving into a, a frozen lake and trying to find that hole you fell through. <laughs> Good luck. Well, exactly. Yes, and you know, I, I like to have some time to do other things. So. I have purposely limited myself to those. And I, I didn't get on Twitter for quite some time. You know, I held off on that for quite some time, but finally did it. And it, it's kind of fun. Well, I, I want to say uh, thank you so much for being with us and, and joining us because it has been an absolute thrill to talk to you about uh, the latest book, The Pawful Truth. Again, the book is uh, to be released on July 16th. And it is book 11 in the Cat and Stacks Mystery Series. So, Miranda, hey, thank you so much for joining us. It has been a pleasure. Wish you nothing but the best. And hopefully we get more sales so you can quit that day job. That would be nice. It's been my dream since I was 12 years old. Yeah. <laughs> and that was nearly five decades ago. So it's a long-held dream. But, you know, 27 books is nothing to, to, nothing to laugh at. That's a massive uh, career still. No, it is. And I, I tell people that it took me 25 years to become an overnight sensation when the first book hit the extended New York Times list. So that was a moment I'll never forget. That's incredible. That's cool. Yeah. So, all right. Well, thank you so much again, uh, Miranda. We will uh, talk with you soon. And again, nothing but the best. And can't wait to see what you got coming up for us here on uh, July 16th. Again, Pawful Truth. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. All right. Have a good Thank one. Thank you. You too.